Good morning to each one of you. I was sitting here during share time and, and thinking I thought I should say something. I was like, I'm getting up here in a few minutes. But we came here, it was pouring rain and uh, during Sunday school, and it was looked out, and here the sunshine is shining brightly. It's a beautiful, beautiful fall day out there. And uh, let's, let's not take that, uh, that for granted. And uh, we have so many blessings, and we certainly could use the rain. Suppose or imagine with me that you were actively involved with or maybe even leading an extremely successful outreach. Within a couple of years of hard work and so forth, attendance soars to several thousand. Then one day, as the leader expounds and articulates truth to the audience, almost everyone abandons him in a single day. What would be your reaction? What went wrong? How could this be corrected? Or we're a failure. Um, but then I have to ask myself, are these the right assumptions? And do large numbers equate success? And what is the bigger picture? I can tell you for myself, if I were the leader, I'm quite certain I would conclude I was a colossal failure. I, I do think that that is where my mind would go. This morning I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at an account here and see how Jesus responded to this type of a scenario. And um, I'm going, I've entitled this morning's message, Jesus, the Bread of Life. This is a long chapter. I think there's 71 verses here. And I'm going to uh, do something a bit differently. We're going to walk through this entire chapter here this morning uh, together and just think about what it is that Jesus is, is doing and also a bit of the, and that will give us a bit of the setting and the context as well. This account takes place almost exactly a year before his death and uh, crucifixion. So Jesus is two-thirds of the way through his three years of ministry here on this earth. And uh, I did not do extensive research on this, uh, and Wayne can correct me if, if necessary, but I think that it's at this point that Jesus would be among uh, be the more pop he's more popular now than uh, maybe at any other point. It's certainly close to the peak of his popularity. But Jesus is going to reveal something here, something profound about him, himself and his divinity, and there's also a prophetic angle to this. And so um, we're going to be looking at this, and the part that I want to really focus on is later in the chapter, but for us to understand what's, what's going on later on, it feels, I feel like we need to start from the beginning here. So I'm going to be reading down through here, uh, section by section, and stopping and making comments, and then we'll wrap up with um, some lessons for, for us all in this. Verse 1. <clears throat> After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, 
and a great multitude followed him. Notice that. So there's a lot of people. Because they saw his miracles, which he did on them, that they were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. And this is why I'm saying this is a year, almost exactly a year, before Jesus' death and crucifixion. The Passover was right, this was right at the time of Passover. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes, he saw a great company, again, a lot of people, come with him, and, and he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what is, are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. That there, Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and disciples to them that were set down, and likewise the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, say, did said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world." When, they, when Jesus, therefore, perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. So here we have the familiar account of the feeding of the 5,000 that's recorded, I believe, in the other three Gospels as well, very similar to this. He says 5,000, but there's potentially thousands more because he says 5,000 men. And so we don't know for sure if women and children were included in that number or not. But regardless, it was a miracle of, with a, one boy's lunch of five barley loaves and two small fish. Afterwards, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. The crowd was impressed with this miracle. Um, you can tell they were impressed. In fact, they were so impressed... Jesus ended up sneaking off by himself because, in verse 15 there, because they were wanting to take him and make him their king, crown him their king. And so this is, this is the setting that, we're, uh, that they're uh, facing here, that Jesus is facing. Well, then, if we keep going here, the disciples decide to cross the Sea of Galilee by themselves, and they actually leave Jesus behind in verse 16. And when even was now come, the disciples went down into the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. Now it was dark and Jesus was not come to them. I don't know if the disciples didn't have any idea where Jesus was. They, he just disappeared and they were like, well, we need to go. And so they go and they left him behind. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew, so that when they rode about five and twenty five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh into the ship. And they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, 
and immediately the ship was at the land where they went. So Jesus miraculously joins the disciples after they leave by ship, walking on the water, and they're struggling through a storm that has blown in. And, you know, there's really not much detail here. It's a pretty nondescript account considering how miraculous this really was. Jesus walking on the water, the storm, and then notice the last phrase of verse 21. Jesus went into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land where they went. And so it's almost like they were, they just immediately arrived wherever they were at Capernaum. Uh, I don't know if that's exactly what happened or not, but that is what it sounds like. But the disciples had left without Jesus, and the crowd was noticing all of this. So they knew that Jesus was not with the disciples, and yet Jesus joins them before they ever get to Capernaum. Then we're here at the next day. So that's the first day. Now, Now we're on the second day, and this is where the events that I want to focus on really take place. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, there wasn't another boat around, save the one whereunto the disciples had entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks." When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. So the people were there and they were looking for Jesus, the disciples. They saw the disciples leave. They couldn't find Jesus anywhere. And they assumed that Jesus must have left as well. And uh, so they took boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. They were, they were specifically looking for Jesus, and based on verse 15, I can only assume that they were still thinking they would like to find him, and they would like to anoint him their king. So these verses really all set the context for what Jesus really wants to do and say here. And as we read through the remaining verses, I want you to keep your eye open for two things in particular. First of all, the phrase, verily, verily, I say unto you. Now, that's not a term or a phrase that any of us use today unless we're quoting scripture. But four times Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you. In today's vernacular, another way, I think what, uh, if we were saying it today, basically the way we would say it is, I tell you the truth might be one way. That's the way the NIV translates it. But maybe even more along the line of pay attention to what I'm going to say or what I'm telling you is important, what I'm about to tell you is important. That's what verily, verily, I say unto you means. So when Jesus says that, we should pay attention. They, I'm sure, paid attention with what he said. The other thing, the other phrase that I want you to keep uh, your eyes open for is I am the bread of life or some form of that. There's multiple times in here as well, I believe three times, that Jesus reiterates that he's the bread of life. 
And as we read scripture, as we study scripture, it's, it's good for us to look for phrases that are repeated because I think that they point to something of the importance or the centrality of what is trying to be said. It's a way of scripture telling us to pay attention or take note. So starting at verse 25 now and, and continuing to read. So the crowd has now moved to Capernaum across the Sea of Galilee. And when they had found him, Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? So they were trying to figure out how in the world did Jesus get here? Jesus doesn't answer them. However, listen what he says. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said, unto, they said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. So verily, verily, I say unto you, so that's the, number, the first time that he says that. Jesus is telling the crowds here that they're looking for him for the wrong reason. Basically is what he said. They're looking for him out of the pursuit for their own material satisfaction, not out of a sense of, not out of genuine faith. They were, uh, they were simply looking for him for some, what they could get out of it. In verses 28 and 29, they ask, what shall we do? And Jesus is pretty much responding, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing to do. That's God's work. Our responsibility is to believe, to, to trust in Jesus, to have faith in Jesus, the Messiah that's sent God, by God. We're to believe, we're to trust, we're to rely upon him. And then the Jews reference the provision of manna in the desert. And uh, that was the primary form of sustenance for the Jews for the 40 years that they were in the wilderness. I don't know about you, but I've, I've thought about manna. And manna is really mysterious to this day. I really wonder what the manna was or what it was like. We just know descriptions from what is given in Scripture. It fell from heaven during the night, covered the ground. It melted like dew during the day. It tasted sweet like honey, and it was a bread-like food. 
I mean, that's about the extent of what we know what manna uh, was like. And that is what sustained the Jews for those 40 years. But then Jesus responds with his second, verily, verily, I t tell you the truth, that manna in the past was a physical bread for physical needs that, that did its thing in the past. But then he kind of reverses that and, or changes it and says, true bread from heaven. The picture of manna, again, bread from heaven, but true bread from heaven is spiritual. It meets spiritual needs. And he goes on to say that this bread from God actually gives life to the world. And you know, their response is probably somewhat reactionary, kind of like, well, well we want this bread. Uh, I imagine they're thinking still literal bread from heaven uh, is what they're thinking as they say this. And then Jesus, in verse 35, starts shaking things up a little bit, if you will, in, uh, with this statement. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all of which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus now comes out. So his verily, verily is that he's uh, used up to this point. is kind of setting the groundwork for this and is leading up to this. But now Jesus comes out and plainly says what he really was trying to communicate and says, I am the bread of life. With these six words, Jesus is declaring his divinity to a crowd of people that he had just fed less than 24 hours earlier with five loaves and two fishes. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he uses the word, I mean, it's the way that the English language is structured. I don't know about the Greek language. I don't think it's a coincidence that he prefaced this with, I am the bread of life. The, the word I am for the Jews carried something far more significant than just a simple noun verb type way of expressing ourselves in the English language today. But it communicated, it was hearkening back to what Moses, I am that I am, when Jesus declared that that's, uh, that when God declared that's who he is. And so this was a very direct statement about his divinity. And he concludes verse 35 by saying that he that comes or he that believes in him or that accepts him will never hunger and never thirst. And I'm, I'm told that these Greek words that for the word never are very emphatic, uh, that there is just simply nothing more, that there is no hunger, there is no thirst. 
um, if you come and believe in Christ. He doubles down by, by saying that, that those who come to him will never hunger again, that is spiritually, and likewise their spiritual thirst are going to be, is going to be quenched for anyone that comes to Jesus. The next five verses feel like they kind of deviate from what Jesus is really saying because he's, he's expounding and he's kind of uh, exposing the Jews' persistent unbelief and stressing that the, the eternal life is available through him. Well, 41, then we see a turn, kind of, in that the Jews now are trying to figure out how in the world to respond to this statement, I am the bread of life. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he said, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto him, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not any man that seeth the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever, and the bread that I will give to my flesh, which, and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews simply were not impressed with Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life. And they said, we know this man. He is not the Messiah. He's the son of Mary and Joseph. Um, and I don't know what, whether it's intentional or not, but the, the fact that the word murmur is used here makes me think back how the Israelites responded after coming out of slavery in Egypt and they're murmuring in the wilderness. It's like they were almost doing the same thing for a completely different reason, but they're, they're complaining about what is being revealed to them. I suspect at this point their original intentions of finding Jesus and crowning him their king had completely evaporated. They were confused at this point, and it would almost seem, and I'm not saying this is not in Scripture, I'm, I'm reading this into it, but it almost seems that they're at a point where they're questioning Jesus' very sanity. They're wondering, is this man crazy or what? What is he saying? What is he trying to communicate to me? And Jesus rebukes them. And then he reveals, or number three of the verily, verily. Verily, verily, I tell you the truth. And this is a very succinct statement. He that believes on me 
has eternal life. So at this point, there is no speculation necessary for any of the Jews. Uh, Jesus is making it very clear. Not only does he, did he say he's the bread of life, but he's also saying here that he's the source of eternal life. And then he states the second time, I am the bread of life. And even though, in verse 49, even though the miraculous manna was provided for 40 years and provided physical sustenance for millions of, or at least a million Jews in the wilderness, literally everyone that's eaten manna is now dead. Jesus makes that point. He's like, yes, that provided life back then, but they're not here today. Uh, they've died, and, but the bread that I'm offering you now, the bread from heaven, I'm the living bread, is offering a spiritual eternal life. It's, it's a life that won't die. And so then he reiterates again the third time in verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And again, he's using the picture of manna coming down from heaven, but he's the living bread, he's the Savior coming down from heaven. And it states, anyone that eats of this bread or believes this bread, Jesus, he shall live forever. And then the last part of that, of verse 51, is a prophetic statement that we can now understand, but certainly at that time didn't make any sense. He says, the bread... I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He's declaring that he's going to need to die in order to give life for the world. Jesus' physical death is required for humanity's spiritual life. Then he continues with maybe some of the more, uh, some of the most provocative language in a lot of ways in the New Testament. Um, and it kind of leaves people puzzling to this day. The Jews therefore strove among themselves. So they started fighting among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Uh, because of what Jesus had said in verse 50 and 51. Then Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, does that clear anything up? And he keeps on. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So the Jews were wondering, how is it that Jesus is saying, 
prior to this discourse, you know, they were kind of fighting among themselves. How is it that he can give flesh to eat, give his flesh to eat? What is it that Jesus is really saying? What is he promoting? They, they don't understand, or they didn't understand at that point, that Jesus is using symbolic language to communicate some kind of spiritual reality. And Jesus doesn't respond by explaining what he meant, which might seem like would have been appropriate at this point, but rather he emphasizes, he double downs and basically says it, repeats it even in a more forceful way, uh, not answering their question, but basically uh, making their question even that much bigger if you will. So the fourth, verily, verily, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, I think it says of the Son of Man, or the Messiah, there is no life in you. Even today, in 21st century, modern, postmodern America, that language is pretty unsettling for us to hear. What, what does he mean? And I suspect at this point the Jews were wondering, what is Jesus doing? Is he promoting or endorsing some form of cannibalism? I mean, it was, it was bizarre, I believe, in the minds of the Jews as they heard this. And then Jesus added to the imagery of eating his flesh to that of also include the drinking of his blood. And for the Jews to hear him say something like that, they probably almost immediately thought of Leviticus 3.17, where it says, It shall be a statute forever throughout all generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. They knew the commandments in the Old Testament, and they knew that one of those commandments was not to eat blood. Leviticus 17.10 says, If any one of you... If anyone in the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. But yet this is what Jesus was intentionally reinforcing with them. Since Jesus is the bread of life, many commentators assume that in this passage or this section that we're talking about right now, that Jesus is referring to the Lord's Supper, to communion, when he's making these statements. Given that the initiation of communion wasn't for a full year after this, and it certainly wasn't in that context at all, I don't think that these verses are directly referring to the eating his body and drinking his blood in the form of the symbols of communion that we, the way we do today. And it, and it should not be construed as sacramentalism in that way. <clears throat> Jesus is using this language both to get the attention of the Jews and to make a point to them that they're just unable to grasp, it seems. It's a figure of speech. It's a word picture, and it's not literal, but he was using it to grab their attention. Now, when we read, I believe it's in Matthew, when Jesus says, if your eye offend thee, 
pluck it out. That's also a figure of speech. Jesus is saying something radical to get your attention to make a point. And that's exactly what he's doing here in this when he says, eat, when you eat, uh, eat my uh, body and uh, drink my blood. And Jesus definitely has their attention now. They're shocked, they're puzzled, they're probably angry. Eating his flesh, drinking his blood, how, how insane. But Jesus continues and adds some clarity to what he means. He says, whoever eats and drinks his body and blood has eternal life. Jesus is using this language, I believe, to communicate what it really means to have faith and believe that Jesus is Messiah. And with that comes the promise of eternal life and along with that the resurrection from the dead. In verse 55, as good food and drink are necessary to sustain physical life, we know that we have to eat, we have to drink on a daily basis. Jesus is the only real and reliable spiritual food and drink that we can depend on for our spiritual nourishment. Believers cannot be sustained cannot be spiritually sustained apart from Jesus Christ. He is that critical to us. It's like the very food and drink that, that nourishes us physically. That's what Jesus needs to be to every believer. Verses 56 and 57. He's mentioning that a believer or a disciple of Jesus... Uh, is one who partakes of Jesus. It talks about him dwelling or abiding, remaining, are some other words that could be used there. This is the idea of being at home with Jesus, where Jesus is, uh, it's, just, it's just simply being there with Jesus. And this is a term that John uses in other places in, uh, in his gospel as well, but Jesus is describing here a mutual abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Like John 15.4, which is a very familiar picture of us, he's really saying the same thing, just in a different way. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless ye abide in me. That's the picture that Jesus is trying to create for them, but he's using the term eating my flesh, drinking my blood. The implications of abiding or dwelling are a lot, but there's a spiritual intimacy and a security that comes when you believe and you're completely trusting in Jesus for that spiritual food and drink. For some reason, John includes that he was speaking of these things in the synagogue in Capernaum. But in summarizing this uh, revelation, this bizarre word picture, Jesus again references the manna from the wilderness, the manna that came from heaven that did not give lasting life, 
And maybe that's a picture of even the limitations of the Old Testament law. But now God is sending the true life-giving bread, the life-giving manna from heaven in the form of a person, Jesus Christ, that those who trust and partake of this in and partake this true bread are going to have eternal life. Verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, and this includes the entire group that was there, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said to them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up to where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given for it were given unto him of my father. So as the people, the Jews, the group of people there were listening and began to at least partially understand what Jesus was saying, they weren't able to accept it. They were unwilling to act on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. They, they just weren't able to accept it as true. This confusion was not limited to the crowd, but I believe that confusion also came down to his, the closest of his disciples. I believe everyone was somewhat confused in, uh, by all of this. Jesus then asked them what part of this was offensive, was an offense to them. And in verse 62, he says, okay, so he was showing himself as a picture that he was the bread of heaven, that he was the bread of life that came down from heaven. And he says, if you don't believe that God sent me, would it make a difference if they saw me going back up into heaven? Uh, he's kind of challenging them a little bit. It's like, what, what's not making sense here? What are you unable to accept here? And then in verse 63, he also points out that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gives life, enabling us to make sense. Because without the Spirit, a lot of these spiritual things we just simply can't make sense of. Um, and we, we don't understand it. And the crowds described what Jesus had to say as hard. But yet, as we see in verse 63, they were actually words from the Spirit, words of life. And then in verse 64, not everyone will be willing to accept these truths by faith. All along, Jesus knew the heart of the people in the crowd. He knew that some of his own that some of the followers that were following him were believers and others were not, and he knew that they wouldn't. Then verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure 
that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he, he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. So here's Jesus at the height of his popularity, massive crowds following him, miraculously feeding the 5,000 plus people the day before. The people love what he's doing. Yeah, he's popular. And it's at this point, you know, or the day after all of this was going on, that Jesus reveals who he really is and the importance and the necessity of actually believing who he is. And almost all of this massive crowd, this adoring crowd, simply abandons him. They turn around and walk away. And they don't come back. Jesus was human. Uh, that had to be hard. It was something that needed to be done. And I mean, I, I don't think there was a regret. But at the same time, I believe it was hard. You know, if I would have been there, I would have thought that maybe taking a less direct approach might keep the fallout from being so great. And yet, Jesus did what he did. And even to the 12, and we don't know, there was probably others as well, but it may be, have gone from five to 10,000 people down to less than 20 for sure, overnight. To the 12, Jesus asks if they're also going to abandon him. And maybe that was a way of kind of encouraging their faith, their weak faith of, it's like, uh, are you also going to walk away? These massive crowds leaving Jesus probably affected the disciples significantly as well. It's like, what are they seeing that we're not seeing? Or are we wrong? Are they right? They didn't understand everything that Jesus was saying either, but they wanted to believe it. Peter here, and I find it interesting, he's again the spokesman for the group, it seems, makes a simple yet profound confession and declaration about Jesus. He doesn't pretend that he understands it all, but he does understand and accept and believe that Jesus is speaking truth, that he has the words of eternal life. And then Peter, perhaps, I mean, we don't know this, I'm reading into this again, perhaps a bit timidly, but also with great courage, declares for the 12 that are there, we believe and are sure that you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And then Jesus responds, not with affirmation necessarily, but he responds that he already knows the heart of Judas um, at this point a year prior to his death. So what does this chapter mean for us today? Um, there's a lot of lessons we could draw from this. But for me, just coming back to and thinking about considering 
the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the only source of spiritual nourishment and sustenance for us today, just as it was back then, just what he was declaring to the Jews. He is the only source of spiritual nourishment and sustenance. There are all kinds of substitutes. There are all kinds of things out there trying to attract our attention and our affections to put our trust in something else, to, to rely on something other than Jesus Christ for our spiritual nourishment. There is literally nothing else that will ever satisfy us or fulfill us like Jesus does us spiritually. There is no substitute. There is, there's just literally nothing. All the power, all the wealth, all the influence in the world will actually not make, will not make any difference to us spiritually except it will probably weaken our dependence upon Jesus. And even when you look at the larger church scene, the latest church growth strategies, the church marketing, the organizational techniques, evangelism blitzes, apart from people believing in, trusting in, and committing to Jesus Christ, all of that is futile. It doesn't really accomplish anything. There is no spiritual life there. Jesus was and remains the bread of life, the only spiritual food by which we can grow. I believe Jesus was very intentional with the language and the imagery that he used here. It was provocative. It got their attention and it made them think and ultimately uh, made, helped them choose whether they were going to follow him or not. What about us? When someone observes your life, your habits, your routines, your choices, your priorities, your free time, what conclusions do they reach? What or who do they see behind these things? Along with that, where do we look for input, for inspiration, for spiritual food? Are we looking other places? How much of our daily spiritual nourishment is from Jesus Christ? The bread of life, the only bread of life. If we look anywhere but Jesus, we're starving ourselves spiritually. Only Jesus is the living bread for us today, the bread of life for us today. Only Jesus can give us that nourishment, that spiritual nourishment that we need to grow, to mature, and to become more like him. Let's pause for prayer. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for revealing 
for Jesus revealing himself as the bread of life. And I pray, Lord, that we would never lose sight of the significance of looking to Jesus for all our spiritual nourishment and not to substitute it with other things. I pray that you would bring this to mind, help us to think about this as we go from here, as we evaluate our lives, as we make decisions on a day-to-day basis that we could truly be looking to you and only you for, for truth and, and for uh, the guide to live our lives. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn it over to Ivan to close his piece.